I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Should we just leave it? Maybe this week we take a blank week while we regroup and figure out something new to say. This week we take a blanket week where, much like the oncoming fall, we are a cozy blanket of fun, comfort, and ideas, unlike books, which are sharp and mean. I don't think you even remember what we're doing at this up top part. We read the books so that you guys don't have to. If you want to read the books yourselves, we welcome you to. If you don't like our opinions, I'd say probably stop going forward. But if you like what we're doing, Ashley thanks all of our five-star reviewers at the end of this episode. And we love you guys. And Ashley, who else do we love and thank? Oh, yeah. I forgot that we say it so that people don't say mean things to us that make no sense. This week, I would like to thank... The fun and challenging June's Journey game. Who doesn't love a good mystery? In the hidden object murder mystery game, June's Journey, you'll awaken your inner sleuth and step right into the thrilling adventure set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. And thank you to Dipsy for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories. If you're looking to light a spark or heat things up, there's a story waiting for you. Get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. Claire. Yes. How are things heating up in your life this week? They're good. They got too hot, and I would like them to cool down. Okay. The chapter this week I'm saying is, let's cool it down. <laughs> good. I don't know. I just think about that point in the summer. I think we're all there. Labor Day weekend comes around, and you're kind of like, yeah. I don't want to keep having fun anymore. It's a burden and it's too much work and I'm sleepy and I would actually like to take a bath and just clean my room for a few weeks. I'm very in the back to school vibe. I'm feeling good about the fall. What did they say in that song? The hits stop coming and they don't stop coming. I just would like everyone to take a breather. I'm in a real ready to focus mode. Beautiful. Ashley. Yeah. If you were a celebrity, what would you call last week? The title of my chapter for last week would be called just... Dick around, man. Listen, I feel like we're on a similar track, but also opposite. I feel very ready to just enjoy my life and do fun things, but I want to do them here. I've realized I might hate traveling. There's this weird cultural moment where everyone thought that traveling was the only thing to do because I feel like you can't take time off unless you go somewhere. Like you're not allowed to just enjoy your life where you are. You have to travel to do anything fun and that's not true airplanes are horrible they definitely will all crash actually (laughs) I don't like airports and I just feel like why do we always have to go places to do fun things and I get that I really made my bed by moving to a place that's far from a lot of the people that I love so I do have to travel in order to see them but man I like just bopping around enjoying the city where I live New York is a Fancy city. Absolutely. There's stuff to see. See it. People come here for vacations. How come I have to go somewhere else for vacations? That's such a good point. <laughs> I went to Seattle last week and I went to just truly a beautiful wedding. I loved being there. Getting back here was horrible. And I don't think I'm ever going to go anywhere again. I'm so excited to have you <laughs> nearby. Before we get into this week's episode, just a reminder, we are coming to Philadelphia on September 22nd, and the tickets are available in our show notes and in our link tree on social media. I hope so. I actually, at time of recording, there are tickets left. I don't know if there'll be tickets left by the time it goes out, but check. There will always be Moment House tickets, though. And Moment House is tonight. Yeah, come to our Moment House tonight. It's going to be so fun. We're doing a very special essay by the one and only Lena Dunham. And if you... Are listening to this say tomorrow and perhaps missed our moment house show 
it is available for seven days of replay. So if it's tomorrow, if it's, say, Thursday, you can still hop in there and enjoy it. Hear what we have to say about Lena Dunham's take on Marilyn Monroe, which is exactly what we want from her. And today we have a very special Patreon episode. It will not be behind the paywall, so it's a free episode. Anyone, even non-Patreons, can access it. We interview Becky Lee of Becky's Fund, which is a domestic violence awareness and advocacy and help organization. And she kind of walks us through what to do for a friend, what to do for yourself, what to do for people at large who are suffering from domestic violence. We're really lucky to have her. And she has a ton of like useful information, a lot of taking down misinformation. And if it's something that you're interested in, I really recommend checking it out just because I think it's good basic information for everyone to know. Essentially, we come across domestic abuse very frequently in memoirs. And we wanted to have an understanding from an expert about what you do in these situations, how you can help someone you know in these situations. And really just get more holistic information on how to discuss these topics. So that is available if you are interested. Yeah, so we're really excited about that. We're very grateful that she joined us. And now we are getting into Fashion Month. As you guys may or may not know, September is Fashion Month in New York City. And the world. And the world. I just didn't know. Well, we're not going there anymore. The world? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm done with it. (laughs) So mostly to us, New York City. And we are doing all fashion and fashion-adjacent memoirs this month. I'm so freaking excited. We're going to have a ton of really interesting fashion expert interviews on our Patreon this month. We're doing some digging. We're doing some research. Your girls are getting a book, and we're going to read it. Yeah. I'm going to find out exactly where these shirts get made. And to start off, we have a true icon in the field, Andre Leon Talley. We are doing his memoir in the chiffon trenches. Am I saying that word right? Chiffon? 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 I think it's Chiffon. God, I'm going to tell you guys something. There's a lot of names in this book, and a lot of them are French, and I'm not going to say a fucking one of them right. Well, I don't think that they expect you to. They don't even want it, honestly. French people, no offense. They don't even want to hear you try. They're like, (laughs) I like studied French for 12 years. and 12? Yeah, and nobody at my French company even knew. And I was like, well, why would I tell you you don't want to know? I heard a French person at my company literally say if they hear someone speak with an American accent or an English accent of any kind, they'll immediately switch to English and like not let them try to speak French. And meanwhile, he was saying this in the thickest French accent I had ever heard in my life. I was like, you are unintelligible right now. And you're telling me you won't let someone else speak your language. You are such a dick. Anyway, I may fuck up a French name. Sue me. How do you say sue me in French? Sue me. (laughs) No, actually suing someone is an incredibly American experience. That's like a U.S. word only. Like laissez-faire. Okay, <laughs> we are talking about Andre Leon Talley in the, sh- the chiffon. Okay, in the chiffon trenches. Andre Leon Talley was born October 16th, 1948. We do have the same birthday. Cute. Me, him, Oscar Wilde, John Mayer. So he was born in 1948 and he did pass away this year, January 18th, 2022, at the age of 74. And this book came out in 2020. For those of you who don't know, Andre. Leon Talley was a creative director at Vogue. He worked at all of the fashion magazines throughout his life, I would say. Yeah, he was kind of just the person who was there for everything. He has seen everything that happened in the 20th century fashion-wise. He was present literally at the front row. He was also best friends, sort of, with Anna Wintour and Karl Lagerfeld. So there is fashion tea in here. Waiting to be spilled. There is a lot of fashion information if you're a fashion person and you want to know about a lot of these crazy crossover 
petty moments in fashion history. I would say just read the book yourself because we can't get into every single detailed deep dive. Every single page has a crazy story about names some of which I've heard of, some of which I've never heard of. The muses, the all these high society ladies, the Truman Capote swans. A lot of the old New York and Paris socialites. If that's your cup of tea, this would be your book. The stories don't even make sense to me. There's one where somebody commented on like Yves Saint Laurent's dog having bad breath and somehow that got back to the editor of W Mag who like got on the phone and caused a scandal. And I was like, how could that even be a scandal? I don't even follow the central premise. Some of them we're not going to get into because they don't feel central to Andre's story. Some of them we're not going to get into because I literally don't understand what happened (laughs) and I could not possibly recap it. (laughs) But there's a lot of like fun name drops. There's a lot of like fashion, art, interior decorating. If that's the kind of thing you care about, this is definitely a book that you should pick up. That being said, Andre specifically was born in a now torn down hospital on the edge of the Tony affluent Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Two months after my arrival, my parents took me to my grandmother's house in Durham, North Carolina. That is where he was raised. He was primarily raised by his grandmother, who he calls Mama, and her mother, his great-grandmother, who shared a house. They were both widows. His mother and father stayed in D.C. and would come to visit him semi frequently. He was a voracious reader and especially obsessed with fashion magazines. He collected Vogue's. And then he talks about his parents' divorce. So essentially what happened is his mom left his dad for another man. That other man, it turns out, was marrying someone else. So the mom was kind of left single. The dad was like, okay, bye then. And the mom, he says, was just broken forever. And for the rest of their lives, him and his mom had a very tumultuous relationship. He says that she became quite bitter, that his mom really loved him or like knew how to love him the way he wanted to be loved. However, he did have a good relationship with his father. He just didn't see him that often. But when his father would come to town, Mm -hmm. he was loving, he was doting, and he always brought him gifts. And he had an incredible relationship with his grandma, who he called Mama. So he got through high school, and he went on to major in French studies at North Carolina Central University, a black state school in Durham. There, I excelled and received a full scholarship to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, where I would receive my master's degree and begin pursuing doctoral studies. My plan was to become a French teacher at a private school somewhere. I didn't much mind where. I just knew I wanted to be out in the world. So his mom kind of gave him this appreciation for finer things. He was obsessed with French culture. He was obsessed with couture. One of his early number one inspirations was Jackie Kennedy. My mother could be quite nasty to me, but I still respected her. That did not mean I had to like her. So I think that this kind of paves the way for a lot of his future relationships with women. He is gay, but like a lot of his friendships with women is that a lot of them have a kind of cold appreciation for him and he doesn't know how to interpret that So he gets to Brown for his master's and he goes immediately I splurged on an Yves Saint Laurent sheets, lengthy brand stamped lush yellow towels and Reeve gauche clothes all on sale. He remembers like everything he's ever worn and it was all luxury. He absolutely loves luxury. And one of the things about this book is I think he really brings to life the beauty of absolutely beautiful things and Mm -hmm. the suppleness of fabrics. He just has such a deep seated, true and both passionate and intellectual appreciation for fashion and interior design and like gorgeous objects that he brings you into that world with him. Right. One of his biggest strengths as a journalist is that he understands the history of materials, of silhouettes, of every single style of stitching, things like that. And it really makes you appreciate that it's not just about the label. It's about the construction. It's about the history of the fashion house. There are a lot of things that go into his obsession with these luxury items. Like it doesn't have to be the number one most mainstream label. He wants the nicest thing. So at Brown, which is in Providence, Rhode Island, also home of the Rhode Island School of Design, 
he becomes mostly friends with the RISD kids who are the design kids. But not just any RISD kids. He has a real knack for getting in with the in crowd. So he says, I made friends with Jane Kleinman and Reed Evans. Jane's father was the end head of Kaiser Roth Hosiery, and Reed's uncle was David Evans, the shoe magnate. Again, this is an example of names that literally mean nothing to me. Maybe you guys know more about fashion. You're like, of course. David Evans, the hosiery people. The shoe magnate. <laughs> is but, it magnet? I've always said magnet, but I was like, oh, because it's a magnet for fancy shoes. <laughs> there is an E at the end of the words, which would suggest to me that it's an A that says its name. But I could be wrong. Anyway. I don't know. I, I mean, I literally don't know. <laughs> he becomes friends with them. And we can't get into every detail of everything, but I do think it sets the tone for what kind of book this is. He says, they lived off campus in a big floor through apartment filled with sunlight and incredibly antiques. Reed came to RISD with a huge van of furniture. There were Chippendale's dining room chairs, a beautiful mahogany leaf dining table, Baccarat glassware, Sterling flatware, damask tablecloths, and beautiful china with gold leaf borders. Imagine. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, these people are in college. <laughs> They're 18, 19, 20 years old. In like art college. <laughs> Just show up with like 17th century Just show up with china <laughs> at college? You go into the dining hall and bring it back? I literally cannot fathom having non-microwavable tableware. So that summer, he goes to New York with his friends. Jane Kleinman's father wrote him a letter of introduction to the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where Diana Vreeland was hiring volunteers to assist with her curation of an epic exhibit, Romantic and Glamorous Hollywood Design. So Diana Vreeland used to curate this costume exhibit every year. It eventually became the Met Gala. As we know today, under Anna Wintour, she made it what it is now. But right. before, it was sort of just the opening night for this thing that if you knew, you knew. So Diana Vreeland was the famed editor-in-chief for Vogue for almost 10 years. He got to work right under her, and right away... He becomes her favorite. You will stay by my side night and day until the show is finished. Let's go, kiddo. Get cracking. The way he like quotes her in these staccato sentences is very funny. She sounds like a fun lady. Righto, righto, I say, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> and he really credits her with everything he knows. Through Diana Vreeland, I learned to speak the language of style, fantasy, and literature. So that winter, she really believes in him. And she's like, you are going to make it in fashion in New York. I'm sure of it. I'm going to do everything I can for you. She tells him, stick it out. You belong in New York. Do not go home for Christmas. And I think he might have taken this too literally. I think that she was afraid that if he went home for the holidays, he would never come back because New York is big and scary. And to come back with like no secure position is stressful. Maybe that's true. Maybe he wouldn't have come back. But he sleeps on his friend's floor alone with no money all Christmas holiday he eats a glass of chocolate sauce for Christmas because that's the only food in the pantry and he doesn't have a dime to his name and his family's like can we please come get you it's Christmas and he's like I have to stay Diana told me and I wonder though if he could have gone home for the weekend first thing in January Diana Vreeland wrote letters on my behalf to every important figure in fashion journalism like a trumpet with her booming voice she built me up to everyone Halston, Giorgio Sant'Angelo, Oscar and Francoise de la Renta, Carolina Herrera, all of her friends, she never let up speaking on my behalf. So she was extremely true to her word and she supported him so enormously. The other important thing that she did for him is to make sure that he was invited to all the right parties. So he started meeting people in both a professional and social capacity, which ended up being a huge strength for him down the line. So at one of these parties, Andy Warhol's business partner, Fred Hughes, comes up to him and says, Andre, do you think you would want to come to the factory and meet with Andy and Bob? Diana Vreeland says we must have you work with us. I said, of course. And the following Monday, I began my career as an assistant for Andy Warhol's interview magazine. With Andy, anyone could be anyone and everyone was equal, a drag queen or an heiress. At the factory, if you were interesting, you were in. And he was like involved in a lot of this art. They wanted him to make up his painting. And he was like, if my grandma found out. 
that I was in New York peeing on stuff, he'd be really upset with me. He talks about Fran Lebowitz coming in and how everyone was scared of her. It was just like a wild time. He's with Reed Evans at Calvin Klein's house on Fire Island. It's an unbelievable life. And he really was at the front lines of all of this. And I do think that being invited to all these parties, having all these wild moments with Interview Magazine really prepared him for being the guy that kind of knows how to come into any situation and be everybody's friend. Then in Interview Magazine, Andy suggests that he conduct the interview with Carl Lagerfeld that they have coming up. And that is just a pivotal moment in his life because he and Carl Lagerfeld hit it off and become pretty close from that moment on and get much closer later. He credits himself with two main things that really help him in life. One, his incredible Southern manners. I think he is very approachable and easy to talk to and just lovely to know. And then two, he's incredibly smart and he always does his homework. And he says his number one piece of advice to people is do your homework. So he knows that Karl Lagerfeld loves France. Of course, he had studied French. So he goes, as a longtime Francophile, I knew the basics, but I dug deeper to prepare. I read every interview he had done and researched as many as the references he'd made as possible. So when he arrives to this interview, he's able to talk with Carl about all of Carl's interests and inspirations. And he's really good about learning. Like, I think he is somebody who really respects and appreciates genius in others. And he's also meeting a lot of geniuses who probably have like a lot of interesting shit to say. But he is somebody that I think an artist loves to have around because he understands what you're trying to do with your work on a deep intellectual and emotional level. And so he's fun to talk to. And so him and Carl really bond over this shared interest they have and Andre's eagerness to learn and deep understanding. And so then they go on to be fast friends. I think he has a really incredible ability to put his own ego aside. I think a lot of people in that industry, even if you are the journalist or the creator or whatever, I think everyone is in that room with an enormous ego. And Andre is very confident in his abilities as a journalist and as a person. But I think he can like walk into a conversation with a genius and be like, this is 1000% about you only. And they love that. The thing about the interview magazine job was he was making $75 a week. He was living at the YMCA. It was, Not- you know, paying rent, but barely. He eventually goes on to get a job at WWD. Women's Wear Daily. And slash W Magazine. So he gets the job of fashion accessories editor. And he gets $22,000 a year, which is a huge upgrade. So he works his way up there. He does a really good job just showing up, just being on the front lines of anything and everything for Women's Wear Daily. At Women's Wear Daily, he works under John Fairchild, who is a bitch. Is so mean. He talks about the way that if he did not like you, he would specifically cut you out of photos and you would never be allowed to be in his magazine again. Or if he hated you, he would pick like a specifically ugly photo of you and put it on the cover. He also says, Mr. Fairchild saw in me, as Mrs. Vreeland saw in me, that I love fashion. And for that, a great deal is owed. And after being assigned to write about the legions of friends of Mr. Fairchild, I started to become friends with many of them myself, including the De Laurentas, who took me under their wings like I was an orphan child. So he becomes best friends with, like, all of these people. Yeah, he says, I managed to master the social nuances between the old guard of fashion, like the De Laurentas, and Halston's new wave of partying. So he was straddling this era where the old fashion houses who do things in a very specific and poised way still really care about their Mm -hmm. methods of fanciness. Whereas you also have like Andy Warhol, Halston, you have all these like hard partying, younger designers, and he can do both. He also then gets into the physical intimacy component of this partying world. He was like not a part of it. Yeah, he says, while I enjoyed checking out the scene under the influence of whatever I'd been exposed to, when it came to sex, I was repressed. 
It was a conscious choice I had made. Sex confused and bewildered me. In respectable Southern black households, it was simply not discussed. Physical intimacy of any kind was kept to a bare minimum, and I can only remember two times in my childhood when my grandma hugged me. He also then goes into a part of his childhood where he was repeatedly sexually assaulted by older boys in the neighborhood. And it's something that he's never really, up until time of writing this book, which is shortly before he died, I think truly sought treatment for the trauma. I don't know that he ever mentioned it to anyone before this book, honestly. Or maybe if he had it been to one or two very, very close friends. But it seems like it was not something that he ever processed with help. He says, I felt I had no choice. I kept it all to myself. I simply pushed through the pain of betrayal and silence, never having counsel or seeking psychiatric help. I felt my childhood traumas were a little compared to the rest of the world. He really compartmentalizes it and keeps it deep down. But I do think this is part of why he was so successful in the fashion world is I don't think he ever went on to have sex with anybody and he certainly never had a romantic relationship with anyone. Maybe he had a crush. Maybe he had somebody he saw for a few days. But it doesn't seem like he ever even had a boyfriend. But because of this, I think he's able to get through this world as kind of not a sexual threat to anyone, which makes you a good friend to everyone. I think the women of society enjoyed that he wasn't a threat in that way. And then also he didn't ever get into romantic squabbles with the people that he knew so intimately. Right. Because that wasn't part of the relationship for him with anybody. And within that group, obviously a lot of the men were gay and there would be one muse that then they would all like kind of fight over. (laughs) It ended up being the falling out between Yves Saint Laurent and Karl Lagerfeld. There ended up being a lot of these random falling outs because of romantic relationships. And Andre was never a part of that. And he was able to maintain this like Switzerland position between every major fashion label. So after all of this partying in New York and working for Women's Wear Daily, and just like that, I was promoted to the Paris correspondent of Women's Wear Daily, which meant a massive jump up in the masthead and an all-expensive paid relocation to Paris, France. So he moves to Paris, and right away, they say he becomes like the king of Paris. He's extremely social. He talks to Karl Lagerfeld every morning before he leaves the house, as Ashley was saying. He talks to Betty Corot every morning before he leaves the house. If you don't know who that is, I didn't either. But she's Yves Saint Laurent's very best friend and number one muse. So he has his hand in like every pot in Paris. He goes to all of the fashion shows. He's going to all of the parties. He knows everybody. Fight between. So one of his real places of strength was the fact that he is one of the only people who was able to be friends with both Karl Lagerfeld and Yves Saint Laurent. As Ashley said, they had once been friends long ago, but now there was an ongoing prison between them all over the affections of the handsome French aristocrat Jacques de Bachet. And so basically, Carl had this boyfriend who was a French aristocrat who apparently was very handsome, and Eves was in love with him. And because of this, they had this horrible split between the two of them, and you kind of had to pick a side. He talks about how he is just thriving in Paris, and then he gets promoted again in Paris to the European fashion editor of Women's Wear Daily and W. I never doubted that I could be the best writer and stylist for Women's Wear Daily in Paris. They had chosen me. Paris was my oyster. I never felt Carl and Eve thought of me as anything but one of the players who counted. He and Carl, now that he's in Paris, are talking every single day before work. We spoke early in the morning before he left the house almost every day. He loves socializing by telephone. We'd see each other at lunch or dinner or at a party, then go home and talk on the phone for two or three hours before going to bed and starting the whole thing over in the morning. They're like us. Toward the end of 1978, I interviewed Carl for W, and he spoke more intimately than he had ever had before to the press. I so admired Carl for his complete and unfaltering respect for technique and craftsmanship in his profession. I also admired how his mind worked, aligning world history with the history of modern cinema, literature, and poetry. Every moment with Carl was an exciting tutorial. We shared a deep passion and appetite for knowledge. He spoke fluent French, German, English, and Italian. Through him, I learned about everything from fashion to furniture to social history. It just so happened that my friendship with Carl also provided me with the inside news and scoops on Paris and the fashion world from one of the most important sources, and he gave me great quotes. He also admits to dressing 
very boldly in a lot of his fashion sense comes as a response to what he's feeling on the inside. I depended on sartorial boldness to camouflage my interior vortex of pain, insecurity, and doubt. I realized that I never wanted to look like anyone else. And I do think you see a lot of that insecurity later in the book. I don't know that he ever really moves past it. He also says, love has not been in my life in any degree. I never learned how to maintain strong self-worth when it came to two people getting down, literally clinging to each other. Yet I found love in little interludes of innocence or wonderful, life-enhancing bonds and friendships that grew out of respect, affection, and admiration. I have had many emotional highs and definite lows when it comes to love and romance, and yet I am alone. Then he moves on to talking about being a black man in the fashion industry during this time, especially in Europe. And he's never faltered in terms of just having enormous support for inclusion in fashion. Obviously, it's still not good to this day, but I think he really went above and beyond whenever he was able to, to encourage the designers that he was friends with to use more diversity on their runways. And he talks about this one Givenchy show where they had an entire lineup of black models doing their runway. Then he celebrated it so loudly. He wrote about it glowingly. It was very exciting and it upset a lot of people. That racism is systemic everywhere, but no one in Paris talked about race. Racism is always underneath, sleeping below the epidermis of everything I did. It was mostly dormant, but would raise its head every so often. I knew my very being was shocking to some people, that I was black, sure, but also that I was tall and thin and that I spoke French meticulously. I had a strong opinion and I looked people in the eye. I didn't turn away. I may have been insecure, but I was never shy. My knowledge and my passion and love for fashion and literature and art and history gave me confidence. I was in Paris to edit and style pictures, and I intended to do so successfully. I was living my moment, my dream achieved. I didn't have time back then to contemplate my plight as a black man making the world. I was too busy trying to make it work. For the most part, I barely noticed it, and only now, looking back, do I realize the blinders I had to keep on in order to survive. Instead, I internalized and buried the pain deep within myself, as black men and women have been forced to do time and time again. So he talks about moments of overt racism he experiences in Paris, and it all comes to a head when he leaves W and WWD. In the fall of 1979, one of my bosses at WWD, Michael Cody, made a trip from New York to Paris and sat in on a big meeting we were having. In the middle of the meeting, Cody stood up and grandly announced, Andre, there's rumors that you've been in and out of every designer's bed in Paris. This has got to end. The humiliation was intense, and I had no idea how to respond. I quietly got up and walked out of the room. So he essentially just leaves and writes a letter of resignation. Which he has notarized because he says, this was important to me. I didn't want reports to come out saying that I'd been fired for stealing petty cash or something like that. I would not resign without official proof. This was not a game. So he drops off his resignation and he says that Mr. Fairchild is quite reasonable to him. They let him stay in the apartment for a bit longer. They let him do freelance work. And then finally he comes home and it turns out what had happened is that Pierre Berger, who is Yves Saint Laurent's business partner. Yeah had given Mr. Fairchild an ultimatum. If I were to stay in Paris, YSL would pull all of their advertising money from W as well as WWD. That would have been a lot of revenue. Mr. Berger huffed and puffed and Mr. Fairchild, in a bid to save the advertising, sent Michael Cody to Paris on a mission to get me in line. And this is all because he had complimented the Givenchy show. Yeah, because he was so celebratory of Givenchy's show. And then also, I think overall, he was a lot closer with other people than he was with Yves Saint Laurent. Thus began my freelance career. He Goes back to New York and he says, Francine Crescent of French Vogue, Carrie Donovan of the New York Times, and occasional pieces for interview, anyone else who offered him work he would take. Just like the beginning of my career, Diana Vreeland reached out on my behalf. Carrie said she had never read letters like Mrs. Vreeland's personal recommendations to hire me. Diana Vreeland is a fucking champ. He ends up getting a job at a magazine called Ebony, hired by Mrs. Eunice Johnson, who is the wife of 
Mr. John H. Johnson, the scion of the Ebony Empire. And they own Ebony as well as Jet, which are two of the major black publications. And he said that this was a real turning point for him because even though his grandma knew Vogue, they didn't read Vogue, but they read Ebony. And for him to become the fashion director at Ebony was a huge deal. And he takes a whole chapter to celebrate what this woman did. Mrs. Johnson bought all of the haute couture and then she would bring it back to New York and America and do fashion shows of high fashion specifically for black communities. And then all of the money raised at all these fashion shows went directly to charity. And he takes some time to praise her and how successful she was at breaking down boundaries for black people in the U.S. to enter high fashion. So he is eventually let go from Ebony because he's just a lot more expensive. And they hired him because they loved him. But then they were like, you're just too expensive. And so they fire him. In 1982, Karl Lagerfeld announced that he was taking over as creative director of Chanel. Paris was abuzz with the news, a beehive of intrigue and envy. Vogue wrote at the time that it was the talk of Paris. Carl Lagerfeld, who was not French, going to take the top fashion hill at Chanel, was in fact momentous. Alicia Drake said in her book, Carl's ascension was a black day at the house of St. Laurent. <laughs> so he has his show. And he always flies Andre out for everything, puts him up in like a beautiful place, usually his own house, but sometimes a beautiful hotel, decks him out in great Chanel couture. Like a kid brother, I was in awe of Carl. At that first collection, Carl treated the decades of refinement at Chanel with a reverence. The clothes were astonishingly retro with elements of Chanel's design aesthetic from the 20s and 30s, but didn't scream a retro vintage archival mood. He is at this historic show, Carl Lagerfeld's first Chanel runway show, and he says that runway shows are very poised. It's like golf. You kind of hold your applause till the end, and then you have a smattering of clapping, and everyone is very polite, and he was so emotionally overcome by Carl's first Chanel show that he's just clapping and excited in the front row because he's so happy and so impressed. And I think that turned a lot of people off because they were like, that's just not how it's done. So Grace Mirabella, who was the current editor-in-chief at Vogue, did not like this about Andre. He felt that she was completely unaware of his understanding and knowledge of fashion. She just thought he was some annoying guy who parties a lot and is friends with everybody. He interviews at Vogue twice. Two years later, he interviews again and she has to take him back. She asked me about the Lagerfeld interview and praised me for it. Clearly, you know how to talk to designers. We're going to try you out as a fashion news editor, she said. As he's walking out of the building after getting hired, he meets Anna Wintour. They meet in the elevators. They didn't know each other well, but they say hello. He takes the subway stops two stops to his apartment near Union Square. When he gets there, there's already a beautiful handwritten note. Welcome to Vogue. I look forward to working with you, Anna Wintour. That was fast, I thought, but it also sent a clear message. I had an ally at Vogue, a formidable one. How did she get that note to him so quickly? I wonder if this is like a little bit exaggerated. Like, could she have possibly gotten right on the phone and said, bike your little ass off and get this letter to his house ASAP? Maybe she has a letter writer on every block. She and Anna Wintour become close pretty immediately. He is very intimidated by her because it seems that for the last 80 years, she's been one of the most intimidating people in fashion. So she was the creative director at Vogue, which was a job that they talk about how it was made up. So it either had the most power, but if you're the editor-in-chief of Vogue, you're just like creative director. That literally means nothing. Ignore everything she says and listen to what I say. It only means something if you don't really know enough to know what it means. S.I. Newhouse, who owns the Condé Nast empire, placed Anna there to push Grace Mirabella out. He and Anna are very close. They are close, even though he started out terrified of her. And he tells a story about being the only person at Vogue who was invited to her wedding, which was a daytime luncheon in the middle of a Wednesday. Two years after the wedding, Anna left American Vogue to be editor-in-chief at British Vogue and asked me to come with her as a creative director. I said yes at first and announced my exit from American Vogue. Then I hesitated. So basically, he's like, when I went to Paris with WWD, they scheduled everything for me. They furnished an apartment. They paid for me to have a chauffeur, everything. 
if I went to London, I have to set up on my own. So he just doesn't go. Yeah. And he says that it's because his grandma is sick and he doesn't want to be overseas. That is like a throwaway line. And it seems a lot more about the fear of moving overseas and not having it all laid out for you. And so I do think that's like the insecurity that I mentioned earlier, kind of rearing its head. When something isn't a shoe in I don't know that he has the confidence to go after it. Instead of my going to London, Alex Lieberman graciously installed me at Vanity Fair as style editor under the visionary editor, Tina Brown. Surely Anna Wintour had something to do with the easy transition. Can I actually say something about what you just said? Yeah. I feel like it's less the insecurity and more he is really good at getting in with the in crowd. And I think part of that is that everywhere he goes, he's kind of set up to host and be in. I mean, if you're saying all expenses is paid at a hotel, that's a very chic thing to do in Paris. And I think that allows him to very easily walk amongst the socialites and the top designers and the super rich people of all these worlds. I think his idea of going and setting up at London and not being installed immediately in the center of where all the fashion is and where everything cool is happening, he wouldn't have the social power he needed to do what he's good at. Vanity Fair gave me a level of freedom that didn't exist for me at Vogue. For the first time, I was generating my own concepts. Plus, I enjoyed working with Tina Brown, but still got to spend time with Anna Wintour. Whenever I would go to London on assignment, I could stop by Anna's offices and she would tell people to let me use their desks. So I would have a place to sit for a day or two. And I mean important people, people like creative director Patrick Kinmonth. <laughs> Kinmonth. <laughs> she would show me layouts and we would review designs as though we still work together. Our devotion to our work continued to keep us aligned. So then Anna comes back and is installed as the editor-in-chief at House and Garden in New York. And I think that this was just a very obvious, we're just going to let her sit at this table at House and Garden until Grace Mirabella is gone. She takes him with. He ends up working with her there. HG was a dream. However, everyone knew HG was just a trial run. It only lasted for nine months. And then finally, Anna Wintour got the job she'd been gutting for. Anna moved fast. She made decisions quickly and she did not change her mind. Just like Diana Vreeland, Grace Mirabella was the last to realize she had been replaced. She found out from TV. Anna Wintour took over as editor-in-chief of Vogue and I was named creative director. There was no higher accolade she could give me as the masthead portrayed. Anna Wintour made me the highest ranking black man in the history of fashion journalism. What exactly a creative director does was never explained to me. In the world of fashion, things go unspoken. Anna Wintour saw something in me that others did not see, the same way the great Delvic oracle Diana Vreeland did. I never quite understood it. As I saw it, I was meant to be by Anna Wintour at all times, encouraging her visions. And in the same bold move, Anna Wintour's first Vogue cover featured a model in jeans. Jeans had never been on the cover of Vogue before. And now, I mean, look at us wearing jeans right now. I know. Us, the pinnacles of fashion, sitting in our Ridgewood studio. <laughs> That actually was styled by Carline Surf de Dunsley. <laughs> Love that name. <laughs> one of the big differences that he points out between Anna Wintour and like one of the kind of notes on why she's so successful versus Grace Mirabella. Grace would have these marathon meetings. Anna Wintour, if a meeting went 15 minutes, that was too long. He says that they would meet for lunch and before the appetizers came out, she'd be like, all right, we're done here. And it's like, then why order Anna Grace Mirabella was very democratic and that everybody got to have an opinion. But with Anna, there was no hierarchy. There was Anna Wintour and there was everyone else. One of the big things with Anna is that you would get your assignments. Everyone would turn everything in and then you would just see the final layout and your stuff just wouldn't be there. There was no notes. There was no information. He really goes back and forth on whether or not he praises the style or not. Because it is really interesting to be like, it just is what it is. That's cool. But also, like, maybe people would have been better if they got notes. <laughs> that was part of my being. My very life was sustained by the glamour, the guts, the glory of front row reporting at a great fashion show. It was my professional hallelujah. It must be said that my role at Vogue was no doubt secured by my relationship with Karl Lagerfeld. 
His importance in my life and career is without parallel. When Anna wore Chanel to her wedding, she had to go through Joan Juliet Buck to gain access to the dresses. Otherwise, she purchased her Chanel at Bergdorf Goodman. My friendship with Carl was already poured and molded solid like gold bricks. This closeness gave me an inside takes as well as leverage. A lot of people wanted to get to Carl. Carl would listen to me. We would sit for hours and look at fittings at Chanel at Lagerfeld. He'd turn to me and say, what do you think, darling? What do you think? He'd say, oh, change it, change it. What do you think? I know that she and Carl felt I had something special, a keen talent to see the magic of the moment of the creative process of refined dressmaking. So then he gets this offer to write Yves Saint Laurent's biography. Which is a real turn of face, because if you guys remember, only a few years earlier, Yves Saint Laurent's partner got him fucking ejected from Paris. <laughs> and this is the same man who's like, hey, do you want to write the official biography? He says yes. He's so excited to do it. He gets all geared up, but he does not take a sabbatical from Vogue. He doesn't take any time off. He thinks he can do it all, and he definitively can't. And eventually they sit him down, and they're like, we have to give this to someone else. Someone has to write this book. And he says, not writing Yves' book is one of the greatest regrets of my life. I had tremendous opportunity, but I was too naive to see what a gift Pierre had offered me. I wish he had done it. I think that he would have done an incredible job at it. I think that he was so caught up in being at Vogue and so fearful. I think that he was just petrified. Like, I know he talks about how Anna Wintour and Karl Lagerfeld respected him so much, but I do think that there's this inherent fear that he's replaceable. I don't know if he's afraid that he's replaceable because he feels very confident because of his relationship with Carl. I think that for his own personal self-respect, being aligned with Vogue is paramount to him. I think the pride that he takes in being part of the Vogue team, and he talks about all the time, he goes, that's just not how it was done at Vogue. That's how it is when you're at Vogue. When you're at Vogue, it's like this. And that's true. I mean, Vogue is the height of fashion, especially in New York and the US. And I think for him to have that kind of label that he is, second on the masthead at Vogue was so important to him and he didn't want to give that up and he didn't want to be a freelance writer for a little bit because that's not associated with an institution. So then he gets into what it's like to be Karl Lagerfeld's friend and I have to say it sounds awful. <laughs> After a decade and a half of friendship with Karl I began to see a pattern emerge. He had a tendency to dismiss people he loved from his life. He then goes through the list of people that were Carl's absolute best friends that one day he just stopped speaking to for any reason at all. Carl gleaned all he could from Antonio and Juan who were his fashion illustrators and close friends. They were really integral to the rise of Carl in the fashion world. And then one day he just cut them out forever. And then Antonio actually went on to die of AIDS. And at the end he had no money left and people asked Carl to help Antonio so that he wouldn't have to die like in squalor and pain. And Carl refused to even take the call. So Carl could be pretty cruel. Once he cut you out, he never took you back. Carl resented people for being close to him. Carl did not like being asked for help as I would come to learn over the years. Carl invented the world he wanted to have, and that meant everyone around him had to play their part. More importantly, they had to dress their part. And Jacques, his boyfriend, was perfectly willing and stunningly attractive mannequin to dress. Carl styled him like an extravagant 18th century dandy, and he did not skimp on the fur coats from Fendi. If you were in Carl's life, he dressed you. In 1988, Andre's grandmother and Diana Vreeland die pretty much back to back. He is obviously devastated, and he ends up finding comfort in Food. And this is sort of the first time in his life that he resorts to binge eating as a method of coping. I didn't tell anyone the depth of the depression I was going through. I put on a brave face during the day, keeping up the veneer of presentation, my sartorial armor. But at home, I was alone and lonely and missed these two important women in my life. My light shined because of the man my grandmother raised and the example she set forth in front of me. I walked with dignity the way she walked. Although she was not afforded the pleasure of advancing because of her lack of education and the culture of southernness. She did achieve the impossible later in life, becoming a chairwoman of the church deacon board. 
To mark the occasion, I donated a communion room at her church in her honor. He then, because of this, joins the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, which becomes a really important sanctuary for him for the rest of his life. After my grandmother's death, my mother and I grew estranged. I simply refused to speak to her. It was the culmination of so many moments when my mother was verbally abusive to me and to her mother, my grandmother. They had such a terrible relationship because my grandmother did what my mother did not want to do, take care of me. My mother resented her for it, but I was better off. So this is also in the midst of the AIDS epidemic. During that, Carl Lagerfeld loses the love of his life, Jack de Boucher. God, can I just say, whenever we read a memoir from someone who was close to the gay community in the 80s and 90s, the list of people that they lost is just really heartbreaking. And so this was obviously a really hard time for him. Of course, the two women he loved most passed away, and then all around him were so many tragic deaths. He spends Christmas that year with Carl. Andre thought this would be a time for them to grieve together as friends, but Carl refuses to acknowledge death. Yeah, and this comes up a lot, Carl hating the idea of death. Carl never allowed any looking back. He abhorred subjects of personal loss. I never saw Carl cry or grieve or in a state of mourning for anyone. That doesn't mean Carl wasn't silently mourning, for although he was with us in body, he seemed far away. So this Christmas... Andre is very grateful for the invitation to go spend Christmas with Carl Lagerfeld. He's like, we are both in a horrible place right now. But what ends up happening is that they're just both there kind of coexisting in the same house, but just as lonely. He comes out for dinner, fully dressed. He says it's this very odd, formal occasion. Instead of having a partner in grief, he ends up not really being able to express his grief to anyone at all. Also, the experience of being with Carl Lagerfeld on a vacation sounds insane. Breakfast was always in bed. Lunch and dinner were impromptu and totally dependent on Carl's work schedule. He had an atelier in a separate building above the garage, which was off limits to the rest of us. In any house he was in, you did not go into Carl's work studio. So he would work all day and you would do whatever you want. He would only see you at lunch and at dinner, which were whenever he said they were randomly. And you could never be seen in the same outfit twice. I get that to be friends with a genius like that is really fun. And people he loved, he gave so much gifts to. He would just give you tons of gifts. But when he got mad, he would take all the gifts back and then never speak to you again. So they're not gifts. Yeah, they're loans. And he would pay for you to fly wherever. And he would come and pick you up in a private jet. And he would give you a full wardrobe. And at one point, Andre doesn't have anything to carry his luggage in. So he just sends him like a car full of Louis Vuitton baggage. Well, that's not true. He says, I've got all these beautiful custom garments that I just purchased. And it is so crazy that I don't have a Louis Vuitton bag to transport them in. And Carl was like, I'll get you a Louis Vuitton bag. Yeah, but still, it's like (laughs) he'd give you all these things. But you had to act exactly the way he told you to. Yes. And I just wonder, at what point is it not worth it? Like, Andre insists to the end of time that they had a really deep and important and mutual friendship. But he also says that even though he could talk to Carl about anything and everything, Carl was never vulnerable with him. Carl was never vulnerable with, it seems like, anyone except maybe Jock, but we don't know. Unfortunately, he says, during this terrifying time, my sexual repression saved my life. Sex was not on my radar. Success was. And if I felt sad, I would eat. And if that didn't work, I would keep eating until it did. I claim it. Yes, I claim it. For all the pain I must endure in the absence of love, binge eating is mine. Anna Wintour is very gracious with him during this time of mourning. She didn't respond to my loss like a boss would. She responded as a caring friend. Early in 1990, she asked me if I'd like to get out of New York and live and report for Vogue out of Paris. It was a generous offer, one that truly speaks to the grace and love in Anna's heart. So he moves out there, and it seems friggin' incredible. My apartment was on the Boulevard de la Tour Mauberg, which has a view of Lay Invalid where Napoleon is entombed. It was paid for by the company. The television was rented by the company. Restaurant accounts were paid for as long as one kept receipts. I had a full-time assistant, Cyril, who was also my full-time driver. I was suddenly using Lagerfeld's costly and very rewarding hand-washed laundry service, housed in a cul-de-sac on the right bank. 
My sheets, shirts, everything was dry cleaned and it was all expense and submitted to the Paris office. Yet my life was cushioned to the hilt. I mean, this was the real heyday of working for Vogue where they just flew you around. Everything was paid for, he says. Well, this is when magazines were tech startups. He was often assigned to creative direct photo shoots. At one of them, he's shooting with Helmut Newton. They're shooting Antonio Banderas. And they were like, oh, why don't you grab a mirror and we'll spray some talcum powder on it and act like Antonio Banderas is snorting coke for this photo shoot? That's the only time he says Anna Wintour got like mad at him. He says, I was like an unnamed Karl Lagerfeld editor. He was very important to Vogue, both editorially and financially. Anna didn't ask me to write profiles on Carl myself as it would be too defatistic. Instead, she got a great writer from the New Yorker and I would be there on hand to oversee and facilitate. There was a way I could talk to Carl that no one else could. That's why I always sat next to him. I was always supportive when he asked my opinion. I'd never call his work ugly or tacky. I wouldn't overtly criticize or put down anything he'd done. If I didn't think something worked, I would simply offer suggestions, different things he could try. Sometimes he would change it and sometimes not. So I do think that that's like another look into their dynamic and why he was so successful with Carl is I guess... The way we're saying, like, who could maintain this level of fake intimacy where the person who's supposed to be your best friend that you're talking to all the time, you're not really allowed to have an equal relationship with? I do wonder if most people at some point just couldn't take it anymore and tip the scales or cross the line with Carl. Whereas Andre was so good about always being delicate in those situations. And I do think that for him, it wasn't fake. I think that he had an odd understanding of what an intimate relationship looked like. And so to him, this was true intimacy. So then he talks about meeting Lee Radswell. Lee Radswell is Jackie Onassis's sister. I know that from this book. And also Carol Radswell's mother-in-law, but they do not speak and Lee does not like her. I cannot sit here and name every expensive thing she had in her house and every single expensive coat that she had in her closet, which he does do. (laughs) A lot of expensive coats. (laughs) He says about her, to Lee Radswell, every friendship was approached as if she were carefully navigating a serious love affair or at least a heavy seduction. To me, she gave nothing but unconditional love. He became best friends with her. And actually, this whole book is dedicated to her. Anyway, this next chapter, I honestly had a really hard time with. So this next chapter is about Galliano. Here's the story of Galliano real quick. I'll wrap it up. Basically, he was this like, broke little genius. Andre is the one who kind of discovered him and was like, this is something we have to get this man aligned. He ran one show. It was perfect. It was brilliant. Andre was obsessed with it. Then when the next season came around, he was like, I'm excited for your next show. And Galliano was like, I don't have money for a next show. There is no next show. So Andre does everything he can, pulls all of the stops, runs back to Vogue, tells everybody about Galliano. Vogue flies him out to New York, throws dinner parties in his honor so that he can meet all these rich people who could then invest in his line. They secure the investment. They get $50,000. Andre personally pulls every like favor he can from his own friend group to get this show put on. So they put it on in this woman's old giant mansion. All the models walk for free. People are donating hats, scarves. Manolo Blahnik donates the shoes. They get everything for free and put on what would be like a multi-million dollar show for 50K. And of course, Galliano becomes a huge celebrity. He goes on to work for Dior. And then Andre is like, yeah, you know, he has some drug problems. He ditched his best friend. He was kind of cruel to everybody. The more successful he got, the haughtier he got. And then, you know, he said those anti-Semitic things and it just was kind of crazy, but we all make mistakes. And then he says this beautiful thing at the end that I liked until, okay, he says, life changes, life has to go on. You have to keep going. I too am a sinner, flawed and fallen from grace, getting up and trying for salvation over and over. And he kind of talks about the redemption arc of Galliano. He says he now designs Couture at Mason Margiela, Paris. Anna Wintour remains loyal and frequently orders dresses to this day. 
He will always be a friend. He will always be an imperfect human being that he is. And he will always have the most supreme talent. Nothing can take away the enormity of that kind of visionary genius. And this is all one paragraph after he kind of glazes over Galliano's controversy where he says, I believe he was very intoxicated when he made those anti-Semitic remarks. Maybe he was in a dark demonic place in his head. It was devastating to me. It was devastating to a lot of people. I did not know what Galliano had done. And then to read it, I was like, oh my God, no one deserves art. No one deserves clothes. People put genius on such a fucking high pedestal. It doesn't matter that much. I'm sorry, but nobody needs a skirt that bad. Yeah. And I do want to say, I know that a lot of people in fashion have done horribly racist and fucked up things. And I am not aware of all of them. And I, there's probably other people mentioned and celebrated in this book who have done really fucked up shit. I will say Dolce & Gabbana is not in this book, but... <laughs> As, like, a Jewish person, I will say, reading these, like, beautiful words about John Galliano, reading the redemption arc that tied up in a neat little bow, like, the things he said don't matter because he was drunk. I'm not going to say it, but Google what he said and tell me that you know anyone who drunk could say those things. It was on separate occasions. I'm pretty sure he's also said There's some There's three pretty... separate occasions that he said remarks. They are insane. Yeah. I think he's also said some pretty anti-Asian things as well. And I will say... Like I said, I'm pretty sure a lot of people in fashion have said really fucked up shit. And we are literally reading the words of a man who rose to the ranks of fashion as a gay black man. So I'm not saying like he should be the one to hold John Galliano. Like, of course not. But it did suck to read. <laughs> I do think one of the things about Andre is that he prioritizes and respects genius over everything else. And he ranks people in his mind as their genius and allows them to get away with what he thinks their genius deserves. And he's very not alone in that. I think most of our society does that. And so if you look at the way that he lets people get, like even the way that Carl's allowed to treat people, he forgives him because he's such a genius. So he goes back to his friendship with Carl. Being close to Carl on top of my independent personality meant that I could stand up for myself. Being friends with Carl was just an enormous, social currency. I think that that's what it comes down to is just like with Carl by his side, he could do almost anything. He says that a lot, that one of his strengths was his friendship with Carl and that's what drew other people to him. But I think people were drawn to him and that's why Carl was drawn to him. And he can say other people were drawn to him because of Carl, but like there is something central in him that so many people loved. He was close mm -hmm. with so many. It wasn't just Carl Lagerfeld was his only friend. He was friends with Yves Saint Laurent. He was friends with Oscar de la Renta. He was spending Christmas with these people. He was the only person invited to Anna Wintour's wedding. So there was something magnetic about him that people really like cherished and appreciated and loved. And he kind of is always like, well, this is the only person who saw my genius. But I'm sorry, if the only people who saw your genius were Anna Wintour, Carl Lagerfeld, and Diana Vreeland, then I bet a lot of people saw it. But those are like just the only people who were higher than you socially. Like there were just very few people left above him that could give him approval. Also, it's not even that Karl Lagerfeld was his only friend. It was that he was Karl Lagerfeld's longest running friend, which like in itself is a very intense accomplishment. Like a lot of people can't stay in Karl's circle that long. And the fact that he could really is a testament. At a certain point, Anna stopped putting me on shoots. She probably thought I didn't have the visual expertise or grace, or maybe she wanted a woman's point of view. The female editors, Grace Coddington and, and Carlene Cerf, were the important editors. This much was obvious. Although I didn't feel competition with them, the New York office now carried an aura of overwhelming pressure. After the success of Galliano's show, it started becoming clear that I'd hit a glass ceiling at Vogue. It was Anna Wintour who had officially saved John Galliano, but I was the one on the ground keeping the scene straight, so to speak. I had done this great job, but wasn't being treated properly or recognized for my efforts. And I put up with that until I did not. 
Anna Wintour and all of her imperial Hawthorne Frigier had put me in a box and apparently decided there was no bigger job in the works for me. I will say, what was the bigger job? Well, he says, I couldn't, for example, be a consultant to the Costume Institute at the Met when other talented editors became curators for the show. Anna Wintour didn't seem in the role of curator. That hurt. After all, I had learned from the best teacher, Diana Vreeland. There was no big falling out with Anna, no big blow up. I just walked into her office in New York one day, and when I walked out, I slammed the door and left. That, to me, sounds like a blow up. Yeah. I feel like if you're slamming doors, that's the blow up. But he doesn't even remember what he said that day. When I got home, I booked a flight back to Paris and did not return any calls from Vogue. Carl Lagerfeld did his best to talk some sense into me. I didn't want to hear it. I was done with New York. I was done with Paris. I was done with all the politics and fashion. All I knew for sure was that I needed to clear my head. Rather than deal with what was going on in my life, I turned to food in an attempt to suppress my emotions. I equated food, particularly desserts, with the love I received from my grandmother. With her gone and my living a solitary existence in Durham, my eating was out of control. So at this point, he kind of just flees back to Durham and stays in his grandma's house. That he had bought her. Then one snowy night in Durham, I got a call out of the blue from Anna Wintour. She was in London and the connection was bad, but the tone of her voice and the fact that she had called me at all told me something was wrong. Her mother had died. Next, Anna's husband at the time calls Andre and is basically like, look, Anna's alone in London. Her mother just died. We can't get there because there's a horrible storm. But maybe since you're in the South, you can fly out because you're below the storm. Andre was not below the storm. So he ended up taking a flight to Miami and then from Miami to London. And he was the lone friend of Anna Wintour at her own mother's funeral. And he said after she gave the eulogy, she broke down in tears. It was the only time he ever saw her break down. And he was the one who held her through that. Yeah, he said, I was her close friend. We officially made up and began spending time together socially. So now their relationship is beyond work. He starts commuting back and forth between Durham and New York for the next few years. And then he ultimately gets hired by Graydon Carter as a style editor for Vanity Fair. He does some of the work he's most proud of here. He says for the first time, he's able to be the creative and artistic director of all the shoots. All of the things he takes photos of end up in the magazine, which is a huge departure from what he was used to under Anna at Vogue. At Vogue, as Ashley said, just sometimes your pictures weren't there and sometimes entire shoots just weren't there and there was no explanation. So he was very excited to finally have all of his ideas be printed in pages. He was also able to do a lot more inclusive projects and he was really proud of them. He was asked to do a kind of Southern Gone with the Wind style shoot and he was like, well, for obvious reasons, that was really uncomfortable for me. And so he decides to flip it and have black models in these gorgeous old fashioned Scarlett O'Hara gowns. And it was really powerful. He also around this time sits down and writes a long memory of Diana Vreeland. He calls John Fairchild, still at WWDNW, and asks to see him for lunch. He sits down and he brings 30 pages of an essay he wrote talking about Diana Vreeland and his grandmother, the two women who expressed unconditional love for me. John calls the next day and goes, hey, they were great. We're running them. Anna Wintour called me furious when it ran. How could I give my work to W, which was not a Condé Nast entity at that point? I told her exactly why. I had to take it to Mr. Fairchild because I knew he would read it seriously and publish it respectfully. She had nothing to say to that, but I could almost feel her disappointing gaze bearing down at me through the telephone. So then when he writes his first memoir, ALT, which was a product of those pages, Anna asks for an advanced copy. She said she read it overnight and the next morning said, this is wonderful. To celebrate, she threw a black tie dinner in my honor on a Monday evening at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. A dozen close friends were invited. This is how Anna Wintour embraces a book, not by reading early drafts or giving notes, but by giving a party with the most prominent social denizens of New York. This was a supreme moment in the chiffon trenches. I will say, if I was fantasizing about something, I would definitely fantasize about being at a very sexy dinner party where a man knocks a bottle of wine into my lap and then he helps me clean it up and that is an erotica I could get behind. Same. And if you're feeling anxious or overwhelmed or like you're, you know, just in the mood to fantasize about getting wine knocked on you, Dipsy probably has a story for that. 
With Dipsy, you can focus on what makes you feel good. Dipsy is an app with hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and characters no matter who you're into or what turns you on. Fun stories about the intriguing coworker, some random guy you met in a coffee shop with like a Irish accent. Anything that you're looking for, Dipsy has got it and they add new stories all the time. They also have sleep stories, wellness sessions, and now they offer written stories. It's your go-to space to spice up your me time, explore your fantasies, or even heat things up with a partner. Claire, besides getting drinks knocked in your lap, what's your numero uno dipsy fantasy? At this point, it's having sex after a very successful wedding. (laughs) I would love to hear the story of two people consummating after a flawless wedding. (laughs) I'm sure Dipsy has a story for that, baby. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash worm. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash worm, dipsystories.com slash worm. Then when you're done with that story, dive into the fun and challenging June's Journey game. Sit back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock escape to the glamorous roaring 20s. Flappers, baby. Who doesn't love them? Honestly, it sounds like an Andre party. If you don't get tired of a good whodunit, you will love June's journey. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective on a quest to solve the many secrets of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You'll need to find objects devilishly hidden in intricate scenes full of little details before the timer runs out. There are a variety of games modes and puzzles. June's Journey has tons of fun and unique features to keep you entertained. For me, it's my favorite little end-of-night treat sometimes. And like when you're watching TV or you're doing something where, you know, you don't need to be looking at the TV. You don't need to be looking at who's talking. You could just play a game on your phone and keep your whole brain stimulated at all times. There's a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. You know it's not a game. What? Fashion. That's true. Almost two years had gone by since I'd left Vogue in 1995, and yet my heart was still with the magazine. I told Carl I was thinking of going back. We didn't need to sit down and hash anything out. That's not Anna. When the time was right, I told her I wanted to come back, and she said fine. She did not make me grovel nor beg, but simply agreed to take me back and went over what my new role would entail. Being creative director was no longer an option. Grace Coddington had already been named to that position several months after I'd left. I would now be an editor-at-large. So he remains editor-at-large on the masthead until... His death. I think he was just kind of a revolving freelance position with a prominent place on the masthead forever. He says that I continue to escort Anna and share her chauffeured Mercedes-Benz sedan in Paris to the twice yearly ready-to-wear collections. But his schedule is set around Anna Wintour's fittings, as all her clothes are fitted and altered for her. I would observe and offer my keen eye for fittings of dresses from Chanel or discuss fabric swatches from Prada, hers exclusively. Milan fittings for coats by Fendi and supervised by the late Carla Fendi were some of Anna's most important appointments. He hated going to Alexander McQueen fittings. He would always try to get out of them. And Anna would say like, oh, no, you're coming with me. Because apparently Alexander McQueen, he says, was just like a darkness. So everywhere Anna Wintour went, I followed in my official vote capacity. On Mondays, she had a brief staff meeting in her office. One week, I showed up a bit late wearing a jumpsuit, perhaps not the thing I should have worn. I walked into the room and she looked at me, observed me, but made no comment. Shortly thereafter, she called me at my desk and said, you've got to go to the gym. I wasn't offended and it wasn't out of nowhere. Fashion at the time was obsessed with thinness and I'd gained weight in Durham. This is something that was offensive to me 
I guess if he wasn't offended, it's not offensive, but I don't think that's nice. So Vogue then pays for him to have a personal trainer. So he works on it and he loses a little bit of weight, but he yo-yos in his weight for the rest of his life. He says, well, I do at a certain point think that my weight got in the way of my career. Anna didn't mention it again. This is not true. We'll get to that, but foreshadowing, this is not true. When in a good mood, Carl could be the most generous man in the world, showering his friends with countless gifts of diamonds and precious stones, a sports car and expensive watches for his personal bodyguard, or even providing black American Express cards for unlimited travel to and from Paris to his closest friends. He ended up staying the entire month of August 2000 in Biarritz in his incredible villa. I did never ask Carl for money, nor did we ever talk about money, but I was always taken care of. He then goes on to just describe the most elaborate vacation you've ever heard, where Carl is constantly flying people out in a private jet sending cars for people. Everyone has the most beautiful linens. There's diptych candles everywhere. The most incredible people come by and Andre is there for a month, but he's very stressed out because he cannot ever be seen in the same outfit twice. So because his weight is creeping up, he's just very uncomfortable in suits and in the couture suits he's expected to wear. So he starts diving into inspiration from Julius Caesar. He says, didn't Julius Caesar wear something akin to skirts, togas, and robes? Why did religious men in Bhutan wear robes that flowed over their bodies? I researched indigenous dressing in North Africa, courtly dressing, theatrical dressing, and capes. The sense of sartorial style was my inspiration to assemble a wardrobe of caftans. And that begins kind of the style era that I personally know him in. Mm -hmm. In just these flowing capes, these big, bold patterns. And everyone loves them. Everyone's excited about it. A bunch of the women at Carl's house are like, oh, you have to tell me where you got these materials. He casually mentions this, which I find interesting. Because I found Andre to just be so lovable in this book. I think in hearing about all the people who fell in love with him, you fall in love with him. And he's so smart and he's so self-aware and he, he's so passionate about what he loves and he's so excited to share it with you that you admire him so much. But then he tells a story about meeting Ralph Lauren for the first time when he went to shoot his house. And Ralph says about him, I can see now it's wrong what people say about you. He said after the first day of shooting, what do they say? I thought you were pretentious. Everyone thought I was pretentious because I was running around Paris with Carl, but I wasn't. And I proved it to Ralph Lauren, whose approval I treasure. I just think that was an interesting other side of the experience of knowing him. And at another point, he says that he could be moody and difficult to get along with, which I do just think rounds out what his experience was like. It's good to hear the other opinions and how you come off. So then he gets a letter from the Savannah College of Art and Design, which is another reputable design school. So he's been invited to received the Fashion Icon Award and hold a masterclass, which he's just really proud of. He's a freelancer technically at Vogue, so he's allowed to do some other projects. And then this starts a lifelong relationship with the Savannah College of Art and Design, where he's presenting and curating these exhibits for these awards, teaching. I think it sounds like he was a really great teacher. He then goes on to curate museum-style shows at SCAD, which really scratches an itch for him and I think was his ultimate ambition. So many firsts happened for me at SCAD. First, I could never have achieved or been recognized for in New York. I sometimes felt that the people in the world of Vogue and fashion in general had put me in a pre-assigned limited zone. Anna Wintour didn't see me in the role of curator. She failed to see how my knowledge gained under the tutelage of Diana Vreeland fueled me. I learned everything from Vreeland. Literally, she taught me how to analyze the power of fashion, its beauty, its technique, its historical relevancy, its worthiness and to be viewed in an exhibit. Fashion can be an emotional experience. And I think that is his central problem with Anna was that he felt he was never given the honor that he deserved. And like his true North Star would have been to ultimately become a curator. The thing is, he did ultimately become a curator. It just wasn't under Vogue, which is what he saw as the pinnacle. Yeah, I think his allegiance to Vogue and his desire to succeed there 
kind of topped his desire to be a curator. And so that's why he wasn't able to like laterally move elsewhere and curate. Cause I do think that he was extremely respected and connected and connected. And you'll see, he goes on to curate some things and I think he could have made it happen for himself, but ultimately it was so important to stay at Vogue and he wanted that Met job specifically. So then there is this moment at Vogue where he is brought in the public relations director comes to his office and is like, you need to come with me right now. And he thinks he's being fired. He walks into a conference room with Anna Wintour, the De Laurentas, his pastor. And they basically have an intervention for him because they think he's gained too much weight. They're sending him off to rehab at the Duke Diet and Fitness Center in my hometown of Durham. A first class plane ticket had already been purchased for that same day. He says no, which I understand. I would be horrified if my boss was like, you're so fat, we're sending you to rehab. However, I do think he was binge eating in a way that was an eating disorder. And I do think he had like some trauma underneath that needed to be worked out. But this still felt inappropriate. It felt like nobody was addressing it in the kind and compassionate way of saying like, clearly you're working through something in a way that we think is unhealthy. And instead you're like, get out of here, go to rehab, stop eating. I don't think it was appropriate for your boss to say you are too big and you need to leave until you get thinner. So he spends the next chapter kind of explaining that he goes back to this rehab. He does end up going. He goes back a few times in his life and he just says my weight is something that'll go up and down forever. I have no answer as to how to overcome this. I will try until I die every day. Just keep trying to be well. Enough said. I was never insecure about who I was, how I looked. I never thought I was ugly. I never thought about my looks to begin with. I only thought about my clothes. In the cruel and sometimes fickle world of high fashion, I know I was quietly judged. My personal style evolved over decades, and it's fundamentally the awareness that a man can dress with splendor and full-blown over-the-topness and be admired for it. He talks about going to Obama's inauguration ceremony to cover that, and that was just a really powerful moment for him. There, he's with Diane von Furstenberg, who says, you need to call your mother right now. I'm a mother, and I know that you need to do this. Talk to her. So he calls her. The operator said, who is calling for Mrs. Talley, her son? There was a brief pause. The operator came back and said, your mother does not wish to be disturbed by anyone. I hung up and told Diane that they were unable to reach my mother. She took my hand and didn't say anything else about it. She's always been a patient and tolerant friend. She does later insist that he get back in touch with his mother a few other times and he's able to reconnect and see her a few times before she ends up passing. So now we're really getting to the end of his friendship with Anna Wintour. Two nights before Anna Wintour was to receive the Legion d'honneur, she asked me to pick a dress for her to wear. It was the summer of 2011 and we were in Paris for the Chanel show, staying at the Ritz as we always did. He helps her pick out an outfit and then the next day, he's kind of treated like her assistant. They go into the car. He's shocked and honored that he gets to ride in the car with her. But she gives him her purse and he has to hold it the whole night. And then at one point, she asks for her cell phone and the cell phone isn't in the purse and he's like, you never gave it to me. And she blames him and he keeps insisting that he didn't have it. And finally they call the hotel and sure enough, it was just left in her room. And she's like, oh, sorry. And then he runs off to go to an Oscar de la Renta party. The next day he gets a handwritten letter from her. Thank you, Andre, for helping me. It was the last sincere handwritten note, a true gesture of appreciation I ever received for Anna. I cut the note and sent it to a local framer in White Plains. Thinking it was trash, he misplaced it or lost it. I verbally assassinated that framer for weeks, months until he retired. Yikes. (laughs) This is like a very interesting story to me. I can't imagine what he experienced and how hard he had to fight to get to where he was as a black man in this era. But I think this also shows both. He really resents that he feels he wasn't allowed to become as successful as he was meant to be. But he was so successful. And when he talks about being put in this box, I kind of wonder where else he wanted to go. Because at one point he was number two at Vogue. And of course, Anna wasn't going to give him her job. That was, I mean, to this day, she won't let anybody have her job. 
So I kind of wonder where else he wanted to go. I understand he wanted to be a curator. I wonder why he wasn't allowed to be that. But I think in the story, you really see one, he is being treated like a glorified assistant, which is somewhat beneath him. But on the other it's hand, hugely he, beneath him at this point, the fact that he's shocked that he gets to be in the car with Anna, he was at Anna's wedding and he's like, but how I can't believe she wanted to share a car with me. And he is a forefront man in the fashion world, both in New York and Paris. But then on top of that, he is so grateful for the note that he wanted to get it framed. And then also I think it's interesting that he left her event early to go to Oscar de la Renta's party. So he also does have an immense amount of power and connections in this way. Like he leaves Vogue a few times. We've already said he's left and then he went to Paris and then he left and then he came back. I don't think he had a fear of losing his job at Vogue because clearly he could come and go as he pleased. And he also was so connected with Oscar de la Renta. He had been offered the job of writing Yves Saint Laurent's book. He's going to a different party. Like he is so entrenched in this world in this way that keeps him safe and guaranteed a position. And yet I think he feels very trapped. It's an interesting dynamic. Well, I guess when he says he wanted to be a curator, he wanted specifically to curate the Met costume exhibit. That was the one thing he wanted to do. So when he leaves Vogue and comes back and leaves and comes back, I think it's because he sees these openings where like, maybe they'll respect me more this time. Maybe because I left, because I showed them I could leave and go elsewhere. When I come back, they'll give me the position that I want. And they were never going to give him that position. Anna was never going to let him do that. I don't know why, but she wasn't. Like we said, he could curate elsewhere. He did curate elsewhere, but he still doesn't feel that he was given his due, which was curating the Met costume exhibit. I obviously believe him, and I do believe that he wasn't given his due because of racism and the time he came up in and like all of the ceilings that he had to break down. But at the same time, he was number two at Vogue. And I do wonder when you say, I was put in this box and nobody let me be bigger than that box. I'm like, you were in a pretty high up box. I wonder what else, mm -hmm. how much higher there was to go. Anyway, so then he's talking about his relationship with Carl again. He said Carl was very generous, material luxury, but more than anything, he was a good friend. I could tell him anything, ask him anything. That's a very important line, and then we'll skip ahead. While Carl could be extremely generous, he could also be dreadful, like blood-sucking vampire, absolutely wicked. The most important woman in Carl's early years, the woman who served as his muse and alter ego, was Anna Piaggi, and, it, and he talks about when she got cut out and never spoken to again. And then she just kind of like dwindled out of everything. She had no money left. They're at this event, and Deborah Turbeville, a photographer, had recently passed away, and he had been tasked with asking Carl to donate the money to create an exhibit in her honor. They had worked together once, Andre and Deborah, and in her will, she requested that Andre curate the retrospective. There was not enough money for it. He needed to go to his rich friends and get money from them. He asks for a quarter million dollars from Carl Lagerfeld, never hears from him again. It is very interesting to me that he really has this, like, we were like brothers. We were this. He says so many times in this book, you cannot ask Carl for anything. And then he violates that. But I do think he was, like, saving up his one favor, thinking I've built 20 years of goodwill. Maybe I could have one favor. And the answer was no. Carl Lagerfeld never reached out to me again. Chanel removed me from the guest list for their runway shows and removed me from their Christmas gift list. Did I miss Carl Lagerfeld? Yes. Did I miss the strict protocol required to be his friend? Yes. After decades of friendship, I'd finally made the list of erased, deleted, personal and professional friends who were no longer of any value to Carl. I was already just another ghost from his past. My heart, formerly committed to Vogue, now belonged to SCAD, which had become a destination where I could create important fashion exhibits. Being an editor at large gave me a lot of freedom to do what I wanted, and SCAD offered me the possibility and creative freedom and stress-free, staff-supported environment to create magic. I began spending more time there and asked friends in New York to donate haute couture for the SCAD Museum. And a lot of people donated. I mean, Anna Wintour's large donation of pieces were donated. Cornelia Guest, Oscar de la Renta. 
Then he is about to go to an Oscar de la Renta show and he gets a call that his mother has passed away. He goes to the show anyway because he just doesn't know what to do with himself. He gets himself as close to the exit as possible, which was an elevator because he's like, I want to see this show, but I don't want to talk to anyone. As soon as the show ends, he runs for the elevator. It's packed full of people. The elevator breaks down. And so he's just sardine packed into an elevator with a bunch of random people having just lost his mother. That's a very sad story. But he doesn't tell anybody. And then Oscar de la Renta dies that year as well. Andre ends up presenting an exhibit of his work at SCAD. Annette de la Renta with her daughter Eliza Bolin flew down to Savannah with Anna Wintour to attend the opening. After the opening, they were so impressed that they asked him to take it on the road. There began my career for three years curating the Oscar de la Renta exhibits at the Young Museum in San Francisco, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and then the Mint Museum in Charlotte. He then goes on to create the book, Oscar de la Renta, His Legendary Worlds of Style. The book almost killed me literally. I lost so much of my health and my work-life balance in trying to be the clock and be the first to have a full exhibit of my friend's work. Work I knew like the back of my hand as well as produce the book. So then he gets into the Met Gala. He went to the second ever Met Gala. So when he was an intern way back when, that was the second one that ever existed. He really lets you know how he feels about it. He is impressed with what Anna Wintour did, but he did not love the way that Antor made it this grand thing. He says... He liked that it's grand. He doesn't like that it's a spectacle. In December of 1976, Diana Vreeland was escorted to the ball by the brilliant American designer, Bill Blass. Spotting me in the great hall, Mrs. Vreeland summoned me to the basement office where we three swigged down two shots of Dewar's scotch whiskey. After, Oscar de la Renta saw me standing on the sidelines during the pre-cocktail hour and simply had a chair pushed to his table and squeezed me into the dinner. Under Anna Wintour's reign over the Met Gala, you can be assured that that would never happen. My invitation to the Met Gala under Anna's rule was as a staffer. I never got to pick my seat. And so then he starts talking about it. And finally, at the end of the Anna Wintour reign, he started hosting the live interviews on the Met Steps, which was something that he loved doing. And I think a perfect use of his natural talents, of his ability to speak with everybody, to have like perfect knowledge. And the fact that he's already friends with everyone. So they see him at the top of the stairs and they come talk because they know him. Anna loved the segments and praised me for them, which was very rare for Anna Wintour to praise anybody for anything. I mean, he's getting older now. I guess he's in his 60s. And he starts talking about the dissolution of his relationship with Vogue and Anna Wintour. So he had been asked to host the Vogue podcast just as a kind of natural extension of his red carpet interviews. And he talks a lot about the sacrifices he made for this podcast. I think a running theme in Andre's life is the personal sacrifices he makes for his career. And then kind of the constant disappointment in the way that his professional life doesn't appreciate that about him. So he talks about missing Bill Cunningham's very private funeral because he had to do a podcast that day. About how he was getting himself by car from White Plains to the studio, which by contrast years ago, he was just put up for life in Paris. And now he's paying his own way back and forth. Then like a morning fog that suddenly lets up, the podcast no longer existed. No explanation or financial severance compensation, just sphinx-like silence from Anna Wintour. She decimated me with the silent treatment so many times. This is just the way she resolves any issue. And I soldiered on through the elite chiffon trenches but at the age of 69, I decided I was old enough and it was time to stand up for my dignity and take this silent treatment from the great Anna Wintour no more. I do understand what he's saying. I do think he was entitled to a lot more respect than I think was policy at Vogue. The way they treated anybody seemed very cruel and he deserved more. I do think he unfortunately was there for the heyday of insane perks, insane lifestyle, and he lived to see it crumble. Like the money was gone from, yeah. it, like this was 2016. Severance package for a failed podcast? <laughs> Buddy, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I was a friend to Anna and I knew I mattered back in our earlier days together. Today, I would love for her to say something human and sincere to me. I have huge emotional and psychological scars from my relationship with this towering and influential woman. She loves her two children and I'm sure she'll be the best grandmother, but there are so many people who worked for her who have suffered huge emotional scarring. 
the thing he loved most at this point, I think, was doing those Met Gala step interviews. And one year he calls because he hadn't heard from them yet. And they just said, oh, this is beneath you now to do those interviews. I took the call in stride, but really it was a terrible way to find out my services were no longer desired. What truly perplexed me was that the previous year, Anna had loved my interviews. She told me they were great, which I distinctly remember because she really rarely complimented me. This was clearly a stone-cold business decision. I had suddenly become too old, too overweight, and too uncool, I imagined, for Anna Wintour. After decades of loyalty and friendship and going through the peaks and valleys of the chiffon trenches together, Anna should have had the decency and kindness to call me or send me an email saying, Andre, I think we have had a wonderful run with your interviews, but we were going to try something new. I would have accepted that. It was absolutely fine to take another direction, a younger blogger or Instagram star with 17 million followers. I understand that nothing lasts forever. Simple human kindness. No, she is not capable. Whew, brutal. (laughs) And I agree with him. You do not just not hire somebody one year. Why didn't they call him and tell him? He later finds out that it was the digital team, not Anna's decision. Mm -hmm. However, Anna had final say in everything. I think given their emotional and personal and professional history, this is not right. He goes to the Met that year and Benny Medina, who is Jennifer Lopez's manager, it was like, where were you? Jennifer was looking for you. And he kind of has this moment where he stands up and just leaves in the middle of the event. On my way home, I swore to myself in that moment, I will never attend another Anna Wintour Met Gala for the rest of my life. So him and Anna have birthdays right by each other. They used to always buy each other gifts. He sends her a happy birthday thing. She sends nothing back. And he said, our friendship was officially sadly over. He still continues to attend her couture fittings with her because, I don't know, she needs him. It's really weird. He never stops going. He's playing now for his own way. I wonder when she goes home alone at night, is she miserable? Does she feel alone? Perhaps she doesn't allow herself to feel these things as she clearly is a person who does not dwell on the past. Whew. His personal life was so intertwined with his professional life. Mm -hmm. The power in his professional life came from the power of his personal life. And I think that it was so mixed and mingled that he did not have any life outside of his professional one. And that left like a huge hole. Like, I mean, as we saw, he has a lot of problems with intimacy. He doesn't form a lot of personal relationships that are outside. His only relationships, I think, outside of work are with church. Yes. And then I think that's why Lee Radswell is so important to him is because she was like part of the society, part of the fashion, but she wasn't affiliated with the magazine. She wasn't officially part of his professional world. Yeah, they were just truly friends. I remain on the masthead even now as a contributing editor, though I rarely go into the office. However, I continue to attend every single fitting of Anna Wintour's Met Gala dress, including hair rehearsals and jewel selections right down to the monoblonics. She will perhaps not like that I have revealed the process but I finally take my felty and flip it because I feel it is important to say that I have helped her chisel out her optical moments for the most important night in the elite fashion world. If she asks me to tend her couture fittings after this book is published, I will be surprised. I am not sure that Anna ever really wanted me to become something larger than the role she perceived for me. She compartmentalized me as someone who served her as her trusted expert, religiously attending these key fittings for her wardrobe. She depended on my instinct for the deft nuance of her Chanel couture fittings. And for the last five years, I've gone without fail to her fittings as a loyal friend because it is expected of me. I have paid my own car bills from the White Plains to Manhattan to attend these fittings. Never once did Anna offer to ask how I was getting home. She considers it a privilege that I must be honored to attend these very private moments in her personal life and do whatever it is necessary to attend. I do believe she's immune to anyone other than the powerful and famous people who populate the pages of Vogue. She has mercilessly made her best friends people who are the highest in their chosen field. Serena Williams, Roger Federer, and Mr. and Mrs. George Clooney are, to her, friends. I am no longer of value to her. My hope is that she will find a way to apologize before I die. Or if I linger on incapacity before I pass, she will show up at my bedside with an extended hand clasped onto mine and say, I love you. You have no idea how much you meant to me. Not a day goes by that I do not think of Anna Wintour. So that's fucking intense. Yeah. I think this is like when my heart really broke for Andre because 
he is a man who has accomplished so much and he is so smart and I think he's so loving and he has so much to give. And yet he never had the personal relationships that I think he deserved. He never had a, a true friend. I know he says Carl was his true friend because he could tell Carl anything, but that's not an even playing field. No, his relationship with Anna, I think all goes back to his relationship with his mom. I do think it just got tricky because they started off kind of on even footing, but ultimately she was an ambitious killer. She's a shark out there and that's not somebody that you can count on for a good friend. You cannot count on your number one competition to be your closest friend. And I know that's tricky because that's who you spend all your time with. He talks about Lee Radswell's beautiful funeral that he went to. And here's another weird story. When she died, they decided to have an intimate close funeral. Only 250 people are invited. And it took him about a week to get his invitation. And so for that full week, he was in like high anxiety mode, worried and unsure if he was invited. Or I'm just wondering, how could you have a book that's dedicated to this woman that you said was your best friend and not know if you were on the list of her top 250 people? I think it's because of a lot of his close friendships had ended recently. A lot of his relationships, I think he was going through a period of not knowing if his relationships were transactional or true. That's true. That's fair. That is like an important context. I mean, his falling outs with Karl Lagerfeld and Anna Wintour happened very close to each other. The other thing is that he felt that his value to people was his proximity to Karl and Anna. So I think he was like probably pretty anxious about his personal relationships without the context of Carl and Anna next to him. That's true. Then he talks about the death of Carl Lagerfeld. In his final days, Carl pushed everyone away. Everyone that is aside from Chopet, his beloved white cat that he was devoted to and spoiled. I don't know that that counts. The last time I saw Carl was in 2017 at a party thrown in his honor. He went and he said hello and Carl said hello, but that was it. And then Andre left early because he thought it was undignified to sit around and try to like suck up to Carl and he wasn't going to play that game. So Carl was memorialized Anna Wintour and Princess Caroline of Monaco spoke at the funeral, and that I found very interesting because up until recently, Anna had to go through Andre to get in touch with Carl, and now she's speaking at his funeral, and Andre's not even invited. I mean, Andre says, that's the big point of this chapter, that Carl would have fucking hated this funeral, that Carl always said he did not want his body viewed, he did not want a funeral. He hates death. He hates death, he hates funerals. The last thing he ever would have wanted is a big to-do, but... Of course, it wasn't good for the Chanel company to not have this big closure in this big moment. Carl was like a brother to me for 40 years, and then five years before his death, he cut me out of his life. This is not what a brother is like. I've gone over and over in my mind the deep loss of Carl in my life. With great happiness, I can focus on the good times with Carl, not the dark hours of the final years. I will always have the golden memory of walking in the forest at midnight behind the chateau in Brittany. It was a wonderful relief to be told by Amanda and Anna Wintour that after he and I stopped speaking, every time they saw Carl, he asked after me and how I was doing. Truly, he could be as lethal as a black mamba snake, but I am now sure that he cared for me even after our falling out. I loved him and he loved me right back. Then Naomi Campbell gets in touch with him. She's creating a fashion week in Africa. Yeah, Lagos, Nigeria. He decides to head out for it. It's a pretty big moment in bringing diversity into fashion. And then he talks about going to Marc Jacobs' wedding, which seems just like a wild party. It was 700 people at the Four Seasons. And then it just closes out with... A couple of panels he does. He has some sort of closure with Grace Coddington when she asks him to be on a panel with her. He feels a lot of pride for the next generation of black men and women who are coming up in fashion. He knows that he had a very important role in that and he's very excited to see people that remind him of his young self and see how far they can go. Recently, I realized that in my 70s, my greatest joy is to wake up, say my prayers and be kind. I try to be kind to everyone I encounter. Sometimes I miss the beat. I must be kind even to the stranger who asks for a photo with me. I must be kind to someone older than I by opening the door. I must let women go before me through the revolving door. I thank God for my grandmother's silent love and for Diana Vreeland's exuberant outbursts and love of infection. Personal style is outstanding when it's backed up by knowledge and confidence. 
Be confident, be bold, and use your voice to express that personal style. Real life for so long has been one of selected darkness, but the sun eventually shines. I dreamed of the life I lived, and I survived with dignity and grace. After all, my ancestors survived the original sin of this great country, slavery, the injustice of having to suffer racism and survive. If this country can survive all the injustices, what is my plight and my burden? I think it is a true wonder that I have come this far. I have always feared life. I love living, and I love cooking to the endless skies. The world can't hurt me. No one can hurt me when I'm living in the circle of faith, love, and prayer. It gives me unbridled joy to give love. I always wanted love. I want him to have love. So then there's an epilogue. This book, now released in paperback, is the story of how I survived in the chiffon trenches of style and fashion, becoming the first African-American to be named the creative director at Vogue. It was first published in May 2020, the height of the pandemic, and in the middle of the incredible global focus on the systemic racism that is pervasive in our culture. So he talks about how he has shared stories about the way that racism has affected him. Much has been written about Anna Wintour, the longest-running editor-in-chief of Vogue's history. I owe much to her, yet owe much more to Diana Vreeland, who is the most important fashion editor and editor-in-chief at Vogue. In my narrative, Anna Wintour is credited with giving me a special platform, yet after my book published, she released a personal statement to the world. She apologized for her hurtful and tolerant behavior towards Black people and the lack of diversity under her reign at Vogue. As I said in a radio interview, she is a colonial broad. She will never allow anything or anyone to get in the way of her white privilege. When discussing a long list of ideas about my February column one year, she said to me from behind her desk, Andre, Vogue is not here to run a column about your ideas on Black History Month. I occupy white spaces, but I'm a proud Black man who is a proud of his ancestral past. My ancestral recall is my spiritual storehouse and my foundation. My grandmother, who was a paramount in my life, was the role model that gave me structure, faith, and values I still live by. I hope reading this edition of my memoir will give you a woke moment of what it is like to be in a white space, applauded by the whiteness of privilege, and yet be a Black man who overcame. Final thoughts. We talked a little bit about how this book felt like sort of a second chapter opening up for him. I think that Mm -hmm. it really could have given him sort of a new space to occupy, especially in the digital world. I think there was a lot of room for him to come in and be an enormous figure in maintaining some of the old magic of fashion with, I mean, clearly he excelled in the digital space. Like he came up in the old world, but then with the podcast, with the interviews, like he could have done something really incredible and I'm sad he never got to. I mean, interestingly enough, I think we left this out, but the interview that he did with Karl Lagerfeld that got him his job at Vogue via Grace Marabella was a video filmed by Arthur Algort. Yeah. In the back of a taxi, it was like an experimental interview where they were doing a live video of two people just chatting and she was so impressed by his ability to speak with designers and his knowledge on the spot. And it is ironic that that was like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and it really could have been his strength. I think he could have had this incredible next chapter if he had an, had another 20 years. I mean, I love this book. I really recommend this book. As someone who didn't know anything about fashion, I did find it interesting. It's like a, if you know about fashion, I think you're going to be really excited by it. He just seemed like a man that you would really love. And he is somebody that I'm like, I want your memoir. I was both very inspired and heartbroken by his story because I think he just, he accomplished so much, but I felt he deserved so much more. I agree. Just personally and professionally and everything. Anyway, tune in for our Patreon. We're going to go more in depth with this. We have a lot of exciting stuff coming up. We'll be announcing it on our Instagram. And we'll see you guys tonight at the Moment House and later at our live shows. And we love you. And Ashley, who do we love the most? Thank you so much to Miss Chananler Bong. I hope that you win Friends Trivia this week. Thank you to Shay McKenz. Maybe you can be the McKenz that Claire marries. Thank you to Schmack Attack. Maybe you can be the Schmack that Claire marries. Thank you to listener 417-1317. I will give you a call on that number. Have a listen. Thank you to Lucy Barn. I hope you have the cutest little pigs in your barn. Thanks to Led Beta. 
Nothing's better than you. Thanks to underscore Q-R-S-T-U-V, my favorite chunk of the alphabet. Thank you, M. Lewis, 1620, my favorite member of Whoville. Thank you to Chat Cheetah. I uh, would love to have a long chat sometime. Thanks, it doesn't fly, but sometimes it does. Thanks, Gem Beer. I would love to sit down for a pint. Thanks, H Bar 420, my favorite time of day. <laughs> Thanks, Abby Lee, 846720. You're the better, Abby Lee, not the one who went to jail for making kids dance too hard. Thank you to Mama Mo 77008, my favorite mother of the pod. Thanks, Noel 07. Merry Christmas to you. Thanks to Super Frog 500, my favorite superpowered frog. Thank you, J10 PDX. I'll see you in Portland, I hope. That is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I fucking adore you. I'm sorry.